everyone. Welcome to Smash and Grab Comics. This is, of course, Tyler, the self-proclaimed king of comics. Uh, today we have a special guest. JP is not with me because this is an unusual recording time. I have got on the phone with me John Lees from Scotland, from Glasgow. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your show again. Oh, yeah. hold on. I think we lost you. Are you there? John? Can you hear me? Yep, now I can. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, I, I was, I'm so awesome that I broke the chat. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was saying thanks for having me back on. I had so much fun last time that uh, I wanted to come back again. Yeah. Um, we've uh, really enjoyed Sync and where that's going. I love the fact that uh, we finally see who Mr. Dig is. Um, and, you know, seeing him deal with his family's crisis in the last couple issues have been really awesome. Um, but today we're talking about your new book, Mountainhead. Um, it's a survival yep. survival story set in America. Is that correct? Yes, I've switched away from Glasgow to the US of A and Canada as yep. well. So we, we cross borders. Um, it is a comic, a five issue mini series from IDW Publishing. Mm-hmm. It is the story of Abraham Stubbs and his father Noah, who live off the grid, um, burgling houses to survive. Uh, for as long as I can remember, Abraham has been on the run, looking over his shoulder, and his dad is a kind of paranoid conspiracy nut who is convinced that the government, the sinister forces of the government are trying to brainwash and assimilate everybody who is on the radar and who becomes part of society. So he lives in constant terror of faceless death squads coming to get them in the night and abraham's at a kind of ages you know in his teenage years where um one he's starting to become more independent and starting to question um the lifestyle that he's been living and two he's becoming more aware of his father's accelerating mental breakdown and into this scenario um becomes this small town called Braddock, which is a kind of resort town a mountain resort town at the foot of the canadian rockies and strange things start to happen there as well, and it all ties together into one big nasty story. That's awesome. I'm really excited. Uh, like I said, um, just before we hit record, I haven't got a chance to get to my local comic book store and pick it up yet, um, but I don't want you to hold back. So, uh, listeners, spoiler alert, he's going to talk about the book. It's been out for a couple days, so you should have had time to pick it up. If not, go ahead and pause the recording and come back to us when you've read Mountainhead. Um, so these uh, this father and son living off the grid, is there a reason for the dad, Noah's paranoia? Is, is there um, a... Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll let you finish. <laughs> yep, no, go ahead. Um, well, basically, um, in the development of this story, I kind of, normally when I, I'll talk about like film influences and I'll talk about like TV influences and what have you, and there's a bit of that yep. in Mountainhead, but Mountainhead is actually inspired by a couple of true life stories. Mm-hmm. And when I've been promoting the story um, beforehand, I've been on podcasts, I've done interviews, I've been saying oh, a couple of real life stories, but I can't tell you which stories because it gives things away. But I think now that the book's out, I can talk a little bit about the sure. inspiration. So sure. a couple of the stories it's based on are um, the story of Frederick Bourdain, who um, was covered in the 2012 documentary, The Imposter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story of Frederick Bourdain was um, he was a con artist who pretended to be a missing kid. Um, to I did to- see that. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so there was that story. And then the other story, which was an even bigger influence, is a story that I first heard about when I was like a young kid and it stayed with me in some form like ever since. And you can see traces of it through various other stories. Mm-hmm. It's the story of Stephen Stainer. Um, I'm not sure if, you, if that one's an older story. That was like maybe early 90s this happened, so it may be like a bit more forgotten. But the story of Stephen Stainer was... Um, Stephen Stainer was kidnapped from his family mm-hmm. at age maybe four or five and he spent about a decade of his life living with this kind of criminal that he thought was his dad and um and then eventually like you know the the, the dad was trying to kind of coerce him into helping him capture another kid mm-hmm. and then um like 
instead of doing that, he rescued the kid and took him to the local police station. And that's when they found out that he wasn't this guy's son either, that he'd been taken when he was a kid. So I draw from that in Mountainhead. And like the story actually ends up being that. Um, but halfway through the issue, uh, Noah's nightmare scenario happens and the authorities catch them. Mm-hmm. And he's been saying up until this point, um, I'd sooner kill you then let like these monsters get you and brainwash you and haul out your mind. Yeah. And like so the police corner them and he attempts to shoot his own son and then they, but it doesn't happen. They manage to subdue him and like wound him and Abraham gets taken away and while he's in police custody he finds out that Noah isn't his real father, that mm-hmm. he was kidnapped when he was like four years old, um and he's promptly shipped off to the town of Brerick to be reunited with his real parents, mm-hmm. um, who he can't remember, in a place that he has no memory of or no knowledge of. And it's all about what happens when you get your happy ever after, but like you've been trained to be paranoid and to question everything, to see a trap and everything. Yeah. Um, that's where the story goes from there. That's great. Um, and so um, in the write-up I read about it, it there's a survivor-type aspect to it as well? Yeah. Well, one of the things that's happened is while all this is going on, um, the opening pages of the issue are kind of like a strange non sequitur, but it's up in the top of Mount Rector, which is the big mountain that overlooks the town of Brerick. Yep. And you have this lone survivor, Theo Halbert, um, who is staggering away from this unspecified scene of bloody carnage and gore. Mm-hmm. He's covered head to toe in blood in his underwear. Um, like, and he's, and he's just staggering through the wilderness. And then, like, so when Abraham, then that's forgotten about for most of the issue. And then when Abraham's having this kind of happy, strange reunion with his family that he's forgotten about, um, out of through the trees in the background comes staggering Theo Halbert. And uh, so I don't know, there's a whole mystery going on about what's going on there. And over the course of the coming issues, like, that mystery is going to interweave with abraham's experiences and both are going to come to kind of shocking revolution as these two paths kind of cross together oh that's going to be so cool and is that going to connect up then in issue two or three or yep it's all going to come together well so the whole thing's all written right now and i've seen issue two is all drawn and it looks even better than issue one does and um the plan for this book is and it's made it a really hard book to pitch but mm-hmm. the plan is to constantly pull the rug out from under readers' feet and constantly shift the status quo about what's going on. So there's constant twists, even through the first issues, a few of them, but as the series goes on, just when you think you understand what's happening, we're going to try and pull a switcheroo and change things around. So um, keep on reading and you'll see things will get really bizarre as it goes on and really unsettling. Um, so is there plans after the five-issue mini for these same characters or is this done after this um, um, short story? Right now, it's looking like it's going to be a one-and-done miniseries. There's yep. possibly some scope that you could continue the story, but right now, in our heads, we're thinking of it as a story with a definitive start, middle, and end. Yeah. Um, although I have to say I'm having so much fun working with Ryan that even if we don't do more Mountain Head, we'll almost certainly be doing something different. Like That's great. How did you guys meet up? Um, It's actually a funny story. I've been a fan of Ryan's going back many years now. I'd seen some of his work... Um, he did some Inhumans backups. Mm-hmm. Ryan was back when Ryan Stegman and Charles Soule were doing Inhumans. He did like some of that for Marvel, and I loved his stuff. Then I'd seen these various commissions and like pinups, and he does these art books, like monster art books, where he draws, and he has an art style like nobody else. It's so highly rendered and really detailed and expressive and quite stylized. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me a little bit of well, one it reminds me a little bit of Ian Laurie, who I worked with on and then when he was gone, and it reminds me a little bit of Junjito. It all mixed up in a style that's all of his own. So I was such a big fan of his work. So I had in the back of my mind. I would love to work with Ryan Lee on something at one point. Like, if I could come up with a good project to work with Ryan on, that'd be great. And then when I met Ryan in person for the first time in 2016 Mm -hmm. at C2E2 in Chicago, the first thing he says to me is, oh, I'm a big fan of your work. Can you come up with something for me to draw? That's (laughs) awesome. Perfect. I thought it was a bit of a challenge for me because a lot of the time um, I'll either develop a story idea first and then find an artist or... Me and the artist will work, you know, like together and develop something. But it's quite a challenge to have someone you've not worked with before say, um, "Can you come up with something, you know, for me to draw?" Yeah. Um, or something. So I'm thinking, like, what would, what kind of story would suit his style? And I've obviously talked a lot with Ryan. We developed an idea together, and the, the character of Abraham and Noah and that whole thing—that was something I'd had in my head for a long time. Mm-hmm. But 
I had the premise and I had the characters, but I didn't have a story for them. So when I was talking um, with Ryan um, about what we were going to do, I had this idea of like blood and mystery in a snowy mountain town. It was going to be called Mountainhead. Yep. The Mountainhead's like um, it's a turn of phrase for people who go crazy from spending too much time up in high altitude. Yep. And so I had an idea of that. I thought we could do something really sinister. And I could imagine Ryan's style in the snowy setting, like they're desolate and kind of like I say, splashes of red, splashes of blood and paranoia. Mm-hmm. I loved. It. I wanted to do something like that, but I had so I had this idea, but I didn't have any characters to ground it. So then I took my old kind of like Abraham and Noah characters, and I took this new concept, and I put them together, and they both kind of completed each other and became part of like a bigger whole. And Ryan loved it from there, and then like the rest is history from that point. That's awesome. How? Um, so is is he is Ryan American or? Yeah, Ryan comes from Michigan. Okay. And so yeah, like so he's. Funny enough, um, his brother, yeah. Sean Lee, is a letterer who has worked with me on Sync and what is like an in-house letterer for yep. ITW. Yep. Um, so, um, like, so it's kind of like a family affair and a laugh because like the, the credits of the book are like John Lee's, Ryan Lee, Sean Lee. Yeah. So when like when Ryan was asking like what 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 you're looking for in a colorist for the book, I said as long as he has some kind of variation or Lee. Or Lee's. Oh, <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome! So it sticks but, with. But sadly, not. They found as <laughs> Doug Garbark, who is excellent in every other manner, but he has an inconvenient surname. That's funny. Yeah, me and uh, a lot of my um, friends, including you, right? We all have John in some part of our name. My last name is <laughs> my last name is Johnson. My co-host yeah. on the podcast is John. Um, <laughs> one of our good friends we always have on the show is John. You're John. We have so many Johns that it's just. It's becoming a running joke now. It's a rule now. It has to be something involving John to get on the show. Yeah. Yep. So, um, what? Uh, who did you shop it around to before settling on IDW? Well, IDW, where would have been a top choice right from the beginning because, like, I'm a big, like, obviously, I had a great experience working with them on Turtles, mm-hmm. and um, so I thought like it would be a great fit to do it. But the way it worked out was. I was pitching something else with IDW at the time, and I didn't want to muddy the waters by like also pitching Mountainhead. So while that other thing was in IDW, and we're talking to them, we were, me and Ryan were going like other places with with Mountainhead, mm-hmm. and, and Ryan had put together like one of the most magnificent. Well, Ryan and Sean, I should say, because they both did it, but they put together one of the most magnificent pitches you've ever seen. And folk were really impressed with the pitch, but we kept on getting answers like, "We love this, but it's too similar to something else we're working on. Mm-hmm. It's coming out next." or this or that so me and Ryan were kind of feeling a bit down in the dumps about this because a lot of our you know like other picks had um, said no and it was looking like very distant we're kind of getting quite you know frustrated and so he came back to like IDW and then like IDW had passed on my other project I had in my them so they were free now so me and Ryan were like okay we'll ship it to ITW and if ITW say no then we're just going to have to abandon the idea then we took it to ITW and ITW like you know loved it and it was like it was meant to be like this company who was our initial first choice but who wasn't available for us to pitch to like and all came full circle like yeah they, they didn't like it after all and so it was there because it felt like it was meant to be and like for me it's weird because for the longest time like i'm not someone who normally has successful pitches like um i don't really count the books to do with comics tribe because like i'm friends with people in comics tribes i feel like it's sure. kind of cheating not because like, they're a great publisher and stuff but i kind of feel like it's one thing from having someone who's already invested in you and someone who knows you and like and knows your work yes it's one thing for those guys to say like we'll publish your book it's another thing for someone who doesn't know you and like to read your pitch and go like just based off your pitch like i want to pick up that book yeah um and so I felt like a real kind of like, you know, watershed moment when IDW said, yeah, let's go for it. So like, me and Ryan were over the moon, obviously. And um, and that was like maybe late last year that happened. And then like, so this year's all been about getting the book ready for publications. It's been a long road from there getting it all drawn and put together and getting all the marketing done. And now we're sitting here with a released book in front of us. Mm-hmm. How are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, okay, it just weirdly went quiet for a second. Um, how do you and Ryan work together? Um, do you send him your script and he emails you back the art, or uh, what's your yeah, guys' like what's I'll, your process? I'll, I'll a, yeah, I write a script up. Um, I've actually written the whole series; all five issues are written. And I'll send Ryan a script, mm-hmm. and then he'll read the script, and then like he'll 
produce some like visual tapestry, which is far better than what I had in yeah. the script. Yeah. Um, like I've had a couple of like, if you actually, once you get a chance to check, look through the book, there's a whole lot of stuff here where I've just written kind of basic, straightforward scripting. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, like you know, there's a page. It's like later on in the first issue, where um, in the script. It's like, you know, Abraham, panel one, Abraham approaches the window. Panel two, Abraham looks outside the window and sees some dogs running past. You know, panel three, um, you know, like Abraham, continue, focus on Abraham from outside looking in, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But then Ryan is putting all these extra details. Like, he's putting this three-panel sequence into the into the page where it's like a like a Abraham POV shot looking out the window, but it's split into like three vertical bars in the middle bar um like the the, the whole color palette is turned red and the little icicles that were hanging from the top have turned into like fangs and teeth like oh, you imagine that he's in the mouth of some beast and like um and like he's done lots of great stuff with that all the way through the book that's like, great just, just to kind of show that he's kind of losing it a little bit you know yeah it, like, that's awesome that. Yeah, and like, and like panel, like I'm just counting up. Like, there's panels that were like as written or like you know four or five panel pages, and they've came back as like ten panel pages because he's put in so much more detail and stuff. So it's been a fascinating experience. Like Ryan is like a true like you know artist, artist's artist. Yeah. Like you know, he's just really kind of like knows how to interpret a page. And he's, he never changes the kind of like I've never like, felt unhappy with the changes he's made. He's always kept true to the spirit of like the story. In the character and stuff, but he just added so much and interpreted so much. I mean, a real collaborator who's kind of like added his own details, his own little personality, yeah, and traits, things that enrich the story and show that he's invested in the, he's kind of like you know interacting with the characters and adding his own touches to them. That's great. I mean, so I suppose the less detail you have to put into the script frees you up more for the story itself, and you trust him to do your. Uh, script justice by his creativity you know you have you have I mean, I mean, faith I do in have it a, I mean, just as a general kind of style thing i do still have a pretty detailed script you do, know, you, do you okay but like i say but maybe i'll like you know like you'll read that and you'll just like i you know add a lot of stuff into that as well mm-hmm. well that's great um so do you um do you find this difficult to work um cross atlantic from each other um and is is it tough for you or is it or is it pretty easy going well, like, obviously there's, like, things like with time zones. Like with us, like, when yep. we had to, like, organize, like, a time zone between us yep. to do this conversation. Like, there's obviously little things like that. Then there'll be things, like, where, um, you know, like, Ryan will send me, like, new pages, like, at what is the middle of the night in my time, so I won't mm-hmm. get them to the next day. Sure. He can, and then the next day he'll say to me, oh, I was really wanting to get your reaction to those pages when you were in bed, so I was waiting up to see if you'd get up, then I had to go to bed. <laughs> and, then, like, um, and so there's obviously a little bit of that, but no, like, the wonders of the internet and technology means that like you can work with you know anybody and across the world. You know, That's great. You it- can... It just like just the great equalizer that you know opens up the whole world of communications. I agree. I mean, like you said, even you and I, um, I just happen to have today off from work, so um, it works out great for me. It's middle of the afternoon, two thirty in the afternoon, and for you, it's evening time. I suppose it's what eight thirty. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. It's just it's just coming up for eight thirty p.m. right now. Yeah. Um, which is which is crazy. I mean, you and I are on totally different continents, and here we have a conversation going, and our listeners will just, you know, to to them it just sounds like a phone call, but it just boggles my mind that uh, at this day and age I'm able to just chat with a friend over in Great Britain, and it's no big deal, you know. Yeah. No. I'm saying it's like we're living in the future. Yeah. For sure. Um, so. <clears throat> With um, IDW, um, have they been really good with um, promotion and things, or um, is that? I, I guess how do they work? Is it a lot different than Comics Tribe? Um, well, I think like obviously, you know, every publisher has its own like you know sort of like quirks and styles and things like. Mm-hmm. Um, Comics Tribe obviously have massive passion. They really get in and they really kind of like promote and go the extra mile and get behind your books. And ITW does that too. But the good thing, what I, what ITW has the advantage is because they're such a bigger operation, mm-hmm. rather than being like you know one guy who's doing everything. You know, ITW have like a marketing team 
an editorial team. Yeah. You have like conference calls with a full kind of like you know layout of people, and they have like everyone that has their own job and things, and the operation's so smooth and slick. Like just as issue one is out in shops now this week, and issue two is already off the print, and <clears throat> art and issue three is underway. And like issue four is in previews, and we're going, you know, through approvals mm-hmm. of the source ad for issue five. Like, you know, so it feels like it's just like a really slick cycle where it's moving dead fast and everything's yep. super efficient. A little bit daunting as well because everything's moving so smoothly on such a kind of like finely tuned track. You're, you're worried about like one wrong move and I'll go flying off the rails. But I, I, um, I can hear you uh, that it, it would be. Um, a little bit different because I know with Comic Stripe, you guys had to do Kickstarter campaigns, correct, to get to get things finished up. Um, well, no, I think like the way the well, the way it works out with Comic Stripe is initially back when comic when we first began Sync. Sync first began as like it was like we had been running it through our newsletter, the scene of the Sync newsletter, and that's how folk could read the book. Yes, and from there we did the Sync. Um, world tour kickstarter to kind of fund a big print on issue one and to like fund like you know convention exclusives and blah 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 mm-hmm. so the book kind of got start through kickstarter and then when we did volume one um we did a collection of that on kickstarter but the, the interesting thing is the book is built up an audience now and has a strong enough presence in the direct market that we were going to go ahead with a volume two through the direct market regardless mm-hmm. um because like, we, we were able to do it. But the thing is, and it was a reasonable point, we now have an audience of dedicated followers who never visit a comic shop, who only back projects through Kickstarter. Oh, wow. And the reasoning, and the reasoning was it would be pretty rotten if we'd got our star on Kickstarter, then like, okay, now the book's kind of like in the direct market, we're just going to leave Kickstarter behind and go to comic shops. Yep. So so even though we were doing like, even though we were, the book's solicited already in Diamond that's coming out in comic shops in September, mm-hmm. we still wanted to do a Kickstarter because we wanted to offer the people who have supported us on Kickstarter and who only buy books through kickstarter a chance to get behind the books we offered lots of like variants and exclusives that were only going to be available through kickstarter so we're staying loyal to that audience yeah well that's great um i was um chatting with your friend uh writer of whaling blade rich uh duick oh rich duick yeah he's having a great year as well between whaling blade and road of bones yeah well we were chatting about whaling blade because he had a kickstarter campaign going and i kind of kidded with him about uh your campaign i said i think john's beating you and in his kickstarter and uh he said no we're gonna beat him <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> i think it's kind of like a draw in the sense that I think he still has the record for most backers. Yeah. But we have the record for biggest amount raised, so we can both claim our winners. That's awesome. Because, uh, yeah, I love chatting with uh, with Rich, because anything Comic Stripe is putting out lately is so good. Yeah. I mean, um, I know we're, I know we're supposed to talk about Mountainhead, but... <laughs> yeah, no, Will and Blade is, like, from the early stages. I saw that because I saw it as a script. Yep. So the concept art that Joe did... Joe is one of my favourite people in the world. He's a great guy, the artist. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, so it's made me so happy to see that book take shape and come out and get released. And yeah, no, I'm just happy to be part of this, the Comics Tribe stable, which is why even though I'm doing books with IDW and I have like another book called Hotel coming out with AWA in early 2020, but I always want to keep on working with Comics Tribe and I want to keep on doing sync with Comics Tribe because they're such a great community of creators to work with yeah for sure um you know i'm always looking forward to the next issue of of sync but i'm really excited to see what else you can do so when i hit my comic shop tomorrow um i'm going to be reading mountainhead first because this has been a long-awaited thing for me because you hinted at this last time we talked um that you had a big project coming up with a with a big um company you didn't say idw at the time but now we know it's idw yeah i wasn't allowed to announce at the time this was the project yep yep i kind of figured that out and so this is really exciting because um we we were chatting with you and this was still under wraps and you guys were probably still writing your first issue and such. But, um, now, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm angry at myself for not having the time to go get the issue before you and I talked because, um, I've looked forward to it so much, but, uh, um, from the way you describe the story, I'm super excited to read it. I love these psychological horror thriller kind of things where, um, you just don't know what's going to happen. Like you described the man, 
um, the survivor man in blood in his underwear. And um, I'm just really shocked or curious. What is that all about? Where's he coming from? You know? Yeah, like, look, the, the idea is they want to create a sense of, like, constant unease and uncertainty mm-hmm. um, because Abraham feels ill at ease and uncertain about what's going on. Um, so, like, I want this to feel like a book where we're turning the screw and anything can happen until eventually something will happen. But what exactly happens, you'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> when you originally we're coming up with these inspirations uh, or watching these documentaries. Um, The first one that you described about the guy pretending to be a lost child. Um, I remember watching that and I can't remember all the details of it. Um, Would you mind filling us in on what that one was about? Cause it's, it sounds so familiar and I'm positive. I watched it. Um, Well, it's been a few years since I've seen it now. So maybe misremembering some stuff, but what made this story really crazy was um, how it kept on, like, the, the, the rug kept on getting pulled out from under you, where you found out, like, this con artist guy um, who pretended to be this missing kid, um, and so he was in France at the time, and it was this American family, mm-hmm. and so the American family um, went, it was like the parent, I think it was the mother, went over to France to pick him up, and it was like, they were, they were showing him family photos and stuff and saying, do you remember this? Trying to coax, like, you know, the old memories out. Like, and he was bluffing, saying, yeah, I remember that. I remember this. Kind of calling these parents. Mm-hmm. And he gets taken back to America. And even though he's, like, he's, like, a totally different-looking kid. or he was, he was actually, he wasn't a kid. He was, like, in his mid-twenties, but he was pretending to be a teenager. Um, and even though he spoke with a French accent, he said that was because he'd been living in France all this time. So... Um, that, that was what they kind of believed and so he's, he's living with his new family and while he's here in this new kind of life in this new community he starts hearing stories like oh it's a good thing they found you because before they found you the rumour was that the family killed their kid and covered it up and like and then like you flash back and you realise that when the mother was coaching was like you know saying do you remember this photo remember this photo she knew that he wasn't her son and she was coaching him and saying like and that's how you should answer these questions to the and like and then it starts to become like or did they knowingly take him in so they would have a rock solid alibi that you know they didn't uh, kill their kid after all that is and screwed thing, up <laughs> and like the whole thing like and, like, and it's, un, it's kind of a bit of ambiguity where you don't know if like um, that is the case or if they genuinely did think it was their kid because it's never resolved one way or the other but it just kind of answers all these questions that kind of like leave you lingering things and leave you guessing right to the very end what what was that guy's name? Uh, or the, Frederick Burdan. For, okay, because I'm going to look that up. I think there was a, a television show recently on Netflix that I think it was called The Family. And basically they had a missing kid who his name was Adam and he was kidnapped when he was a young boy. And then um, all of a sudden their son returned to them several years later. and um, But it wasn't their son. It was an imposter looking to... I don't know, be taken in by the family or something. And it sounds very familiar yeah. to this Frederick story. Yeah. And also, like, if you wanted to learn more about Stephen Stainer, who... Yeah, for his sure. Family, his family had a terrible... And actually, that was a, there was actually a TV movie of that made in the 1990s. You can watch it on YouTube now, I'm sure. Okay. It's called I Remember My First Name Was Stephen. And um, it's always a bit hokey because it's like a 1990s TV movie, but there's still some power in it. That's what I remember watching when I was a kid, and yeah. the story always stuck with me. And that and that story was like, you know, that family went through the ringer because, like, obviously, like this kid, like he was returned as a teenager, um, and like he went and they kind of real, reacclimatized with his family again. Mm-hmm. And then after the TV movie was made, like the kid died in like a motorcycle accident like you know like a year later yeah um and then there are the, the family's other kids like the older who's like the, old, the older brother who's in the movie like played you know by an actor obviously sure. he turned out to be a notorious serial killer oh boy and like <laughs> and like and like you think like michael how, how much can one family go through that sounds very familiar now that you say that so um I'm gonna have to look that one's on YouTube. Um, my name is Steve. Yeah. I, th- I remember my I remember, name is Stephen. I think it's, it's called something like I remember my first name was Stephen. Okay. Something along those lines. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out because I I'm a huge true crime buff. I love listening to uh, murder podcasts and cult conspiracies and this. So Mountainhead sounds right up my alley. You know. 
Yeah, I'm a kind of fan of that kind of stuff as well. So I wanted to kind of add elements of that into the story. But if you hear like grunting and heavy breathing, it's not me. It's my dog that just ran into the room and he's jumping up in my lap. I've seen pictures of your dog. Is it a French bulldog? Yeah, it's wee Frenchy. Yeah, that's what I thought it was because I've seen pictures on on uh, on the internet and he's so cute. I have I have pugs and they make terrible noise too. <laughs> <laughs> um. So where do you generally draw inspiration from? TV shows or books or magazines, it can news be articles? Anything, to be honest, um, it can be like you know movies. It can be um, like TV shows. It can be real life stories. Sometimes it's other comics. Like hmm. um, the like when I'm writing the series I'm writing right right now, Hotel. Yeah. A lot of like Junjiro horror kind of like in the DNA of that, and like you know, and I know it's just a case of like the stuff that's going to grind rounding around in my brain pan and what kind of comes up to the surface when I want to come up with a story. Is Hotel, is that going to be like a haunted story? or what's... A Hotel um, is it's going to be coming out early 2020. It's mm-hmm. one of the first books from Upshot Studios lineup. Is that new imprint from our new publisher, sorry, from Axel Alonso and Bill Jamas. It's called, what's, um, it, what's it called? The... Well, it's it's the the parent company is called AWA. AWA, um, okay. Which I think starts for artists, writers, and artisans. But the kind of publisher, which is putting out um, my book, which is like a creator-owned line, which is called Upshot Studios. Upshot, okay. And like, it's a, I've seen some of the stuff these guys have coming up, and it's really exciting to have a kind of really impressive roster of creators. And I'm kind of like still think I'm dreaming that I'm included in it. But um, oh, like, so you hotel should. Is, you shouldn't feel that way. I mean, your writing is awesome. Sorry to interrupt you, but you shouldn't. Well, thank you very much. You shouldn't um, feel that way at all because um, I, I've only from you of your writing. I've only read Sync, but it's so captivating. Like month to month, I can't wait to see what's going to happen next because right off the bat, you think it's an anthology series, and then and then we kind of feel it coming together with the Mister Dig backstory and his family stuff, and it just all of a sudden brings everything together. And, yeah, well, it's very gradually going to become part of a larger whole. Yeah. Um, hopefully, well, however, however long that takes, or however long people are, are interested in the series when they get bored of it. Yeah. But, um, like, yeah, like for um, Hotel, that's also an anthology series. Okay. Um, and it's set in an old, like, roadside motel mm-hmm. off Route 66. Oh. And the idea is that um, you won't find this place on any map. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, where it actually appears um, varies from account to account but if you're driving down Route 66 and you're alone and you're in desperate need of shelter or sanctuary or um, like some or secrecy or anything sure. like that perhaps you'll see a sign that appears on the road saying hotel next exit on the left mm-hmm and if you follow that road, you'll find your way into the Piero Courts Hotel. And the series is a four-issue miniseries, and each issue tells a story of the happenings in a different room in the hotel over the course of one weekend, the weekend of a solar eclipse. And so, like, it's one of these great sections, kind of like a Rashomon-type thing, where sure. um, each issues in its own room but like you, know, you see the same event the same event happening over and over again from different perspectives and you learn more about what's going on each time you see it um and it's been quite a labyrinthine thing to try and plot out and trying to figure out how the chronology all matches up but i'm on the last issue right now and like i'm feeling quite happy with it i feel that like sync is like a crime story yes. um with horror elements which also kind of verges into action or based on Sync Issue 10, rom-com. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, Mountainhead is, like, um, a kind of dra- family drama with horror elements, but Hotel is just me going back to, like, full-blown, hardcore, full-out horror, and it's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. Um, so who's your creative team for Hotel? Um, the creative team for Hotel is uh, Dalibor Talajic is the artist. He okay. did... Um, Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe. Yep. I think yep. Best known for. And the colorist is Lee Lowridge, uh, who recently did some work on Batman. Mm-hmm. And the letterer is Sal Cipriano, uh, industry veteran um, with a whole host of credits under his belt. Works for every publisher. 
And so, like, yeah, they put together a great team around me, so it's just up to me not to screw up, I think. <laughs> um, hey, do you have a lot of... Have you traveled in uh, the U.S. a lot? Um, uh, quite with... a bit for conventions. I've been to... Um, well, I went to San Diego Comic-Con as a fan yep. before I was properly exhibiting. Uh, and then I've been to... I, I go, I've been to New York every year since 2011 for New York Comic-Con. Are you going this uh, year? I'm going this year, yes. Because I'll, be uh, I'll be there as well. We need to meet up. Oh, yeah, come and say hello, and I'll introduce you to Alex Cormack of Sync Fame, and also Ryan Lee of Mountainhead Fame. That's awesome. Um, I'll be with because I'll be um, at, I'll be at Doug Mankey um, at his booth. <coughs> uh, you know Doug Mankey from Detective Comics. Um, I'll be I, I'll be at his booth in Artist Alley, um, helping out with them. But I'll have plenty of time to roam around the convention well, I'll too. Be so type booth up in the show floor. So okay, sounds there, you. and. Yes, I've been in New York. I've been to Seattle a couple of times for Emerald City. I've been to Chicago for C2E2. I've been to um, Charlotte, North Carolina for Heroes Con. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've traveled around a lot, but I'm always looking for more places to go. So, if any US conventions out there want to invite me out, um, send me a message. I'm probably available. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, because um, I love reading your stories in sync about scotland because i've never been to europe let alone great britain um so um those are a lot of fun and then to see you write stories about america and do you have to do a lot of research when like with mountainhead was it yeah, tough you th it's funny. more than you think because like, our editor on mountainhead is bobby colonel mm -hmm. uh like you think that we we, we taught the same language but we really don't like there's been a lot of times when I've written things and, like it's been mostly positive feedback but Bobby's like get that turn of phrase we don't say that in the US or mm -hmm. this, one, this one blew my mind yeah apparently you guys in the US spell pajamas P-A-J-A-M-A-S yes we, I've always spelled it P-Y-J-A-M-A-S oh um, so like, I was like what, what was someone they said that you have to spell it with an A and I was like what the hell are you talking about you heathens <laughs> heathens um <laughs> But, like, you know, there's lots of like, little things like that, like, you know, where um, you have to learn to kind of be authentically American and not yes. talk in British or Scottish and slang like I do. And, like, I've had that, like, I'm doing an art comedy right now, which is currently unannounced, but mm -hmm. I'm working with editors and that. And, like, one of the notes they've given me back is, like, oh, this is set in New Orleans, then, like, there's a whole bunch of New Orleans dialects you're going to have to kind of work in. That's so tough, too. That right now, and that's tough. Um, yeah, that's just part of the work of being a writer, trying to be authentic in different voices. Yeah, and down in New Orleans, they, they pronounce it New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah. Yep, and see, I, I'm up in the north. I'm near Canada. I live in Minnesota. Um, so um, <clears throat> we don't ha – I mean, I don't think I have an accent, but um, compared to our east coast or west coast or even uh, south, like uh, New Orleans, um, where – I don't know. I feel like I speak just middle of the road. I'm very Midwestern, you know? <laughs> the, funny, the funny thing is, everybody has an accent. I know, I know. And this is because I studied like, language and stuff. Um, and one of the things that's fascinating for me is that in the UK, there's something which is called received pronunciation or received English. Okay. And it's like basically, it's the voice that. You'll hear like an old BBC News broadcast, a very clipped English accent. Hello and welcome to BBC News. Yes. Like, London. Yep. Like, and like, and people, a lot of people think of that as, oh, that's the default British accent. People try and struggle to speak in that accent. They think it's like the proper accent. When that's not actually a real accent, like no actual person talks like they, that. It was like, just for the news. First, <laughs> yeah, when they, first, when they first started doing BBC News, they actually told people with regional accents that they tried to make them talk like that because it was a neutral voice, so they couldn't tell where people came from. Oh, so it's actually okay. an artificial voice. Um, like, so everyone has an accent. I think that's kind of one of these things I find really interesting. That is funny. Yeah, a lot of people, I mean, you've probably seen the movie Fargo, right? Um, yeah. Okay, so around us people some people do talk like that a little a little bit not that bad you know the oh yeah you betcha yeah uh, a little bit but i mean because that's the region i live in in minnesota yeah. we the tv show fargo um season two for the tv show was filmed in my hometown here um i love that yeah so if you watch fargo season two that's where i live <laughs> um so um we do talk like that a little bit and i catch myself once in a while going oh yeah i remember that you know 
<laughs> but uh, not too often. Yeah. My my grandma does. She'll say, "Oh yeah, you betcha." You know. <laughs> she's she's well, she's Norwegian. <laughs> well, I'm I'm very used to now by having Americans sort of like do the beam me up, Scotty. I'm like, I can't do it, Captain. I don't have the power. I just I can't so. do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, were you a Star Trek fan when you were young? Um, to be, I think I maybe have seen an episode here and there, like you know, but I wasn't particularly a fan. Me too. Um, Same. Like, I, I have enjoyed. I've enjoyed the new movies, which is maybe like I said, I'm not that much a fan. Right now that the new movies are good and they're out, and J.J. Abrams are doing them, I'm tempted to go back and catch up on all the Star Trek stuff, but there's just so much. I just don't know if I want to dive into it. <laughs> Yeah, it's an awful lot there. Um, yeah, but I do know people who I'm friends with and whose taste I trust who are big Star Trek fans. So yeah. must be something. What do you think of J.J. Abrams and his son writing the new Spider-Man comic? To be honest, like I saw there was a lot of sour grapes about it. And, oh, J.J. Abrams' son is stolen like a gig for me by doing this. Like, no, he's not. This is a gig that wouldn't have existed. It was made specifically for him. Yes. Um, so like I, feel, I kind of feel like there's no harm in it really like it's um like worst case scenario it's a book that's not good and people forget about it but like best case scenario like it's um a book that draws a lot of attention to comics gets more people in a comic shop and gets them to try something that's a bit different so that's true i would say there's no harm in it really well they do have a new villain that's being introduced so um that that might take off and be good for them you know but um yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, at first, I was a little mad because there's a lot of people in the industry that have paid their dues, and to them, getting to do a Spider-Man or a Batman or Superman, that's yep. the that's the top of their game. But, but, that, but that's that's the thing, though. Like for me, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like J.J. Abrams' son isn't writing Amazing Spider-Man. He's not taking a gig from someone who's been waiting in line. You're this right. This is just like an additional book that was made ju- that wouldn't have existed if J.J. Abrams hadn't came in and said, "I want to write a Spider-Man book." That you're right. I and my my friend JP, he told me the same thing. But I I'm one of those that going. No, wait a minute. I think it should go to somebody who's paid their dues. You know. But I I, I see I see what you're saying. Give it to John Lee's. He needs to do Spider Man. Would yeah. would you if you given the chance? Would you want to break out into mainstream books uh, like DC or Marvel or? Oh, absolutely. Like you know, I think I would always like to be doing my own stuff to some degree i wouldn't want to be someone who ends up getting so focused on doing like work for higher gigs that then just stop doing their own books like mm-hmm. i'd always like to have at least one foot in the creator own pool tell my own kind of stories and stuff but no absolutely like as a fan and as a reader like i read like lots of marvel and dc so yep they're the kind of books i enjoy so I think it would be a bit hypocritical for me to not want to write for them so yeah like you know i would absolutely love to like you know have a wee go at, like, contributing to that tapestry as well. And, like, you know, I always have a few ideas, like, in my back pocket if that were to ever happen. But, well, yeah, no, like, you know, it's one of these things I'll keep an open mind and see what happens. That's what I love about Donny Cates. You know, he's writing these huge books, but yet he still writes Baby Teeth, which is awesome. Yep. I love that book. Um, you know, and, you know, he's still really tied to the independent creator-owned community, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like, and for me, the one that always comes up to mind for me as well is Jason Aaron. Yes. Um, who, like, you know, was doing, like, obviously he's doing a store run and stuff, but he's also been doing, like, you know, he did used to do Scout, which is finished now, but like Southern Bastards, and mm-hmm. he's doing that Sea of Stars now as well. Like, you know, he has, like, an, or Jeff Lemire, he's another one who kind of jumps back and forth. Love Jeff Lemire. Yeah, no, he's an excellent guy. For me, my favorite Jeff Lemire is when he's like writing and drawing his own stuff. Like, I still think uh, Essex County is one of the best books of all time. I have, um, I have that and the Nobody here actually right in front of me on my bookshelf. Um, you're right, both both books. Um, I love his artwork. Um, his writing is really good, but I think by far his best series is has been um, well, number one, Sweet Tooth, but. Um, right now, oh, sweet. That, was, that was it for Scott Man. Jeff Lemire was sweet tooth. Yeah, and then the one he's doing right now, um, with Gideon Falls. Yeah, Gideon Falls is so good. I'm just, yeah, I'm Gideon in love Falls. with it. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things where, like, I was, I was so exhilarating to read that book because, like, I think like, I was reading it and like. And I was like, oh, I think I doubt where this is going. Like about one or two issues before they made it like explicit, you know. And I was yep. like, yes. Like, oh, you figured it out where what the going on with the Black Barn and with yeah, Norman yeah, or the world and stuff. yeah, he um, 
at first I didn't realize that the big city that uh, that Norton was living in was Gideon Falls. I thought that was like maybe New York City or something like that. But then we oh, find Gideon Falls. Is yeah, it? then we just find out it's a different Gideon Falls, which is crazy. Blew my mind. Um, yeah, great book. Um, who else do you like to read? Uh, independent comics. What are you reading right now? All right. Um, independent book. Like I, I was reading Road the Bones. Absolutely loved that. I think yeah. that was excellent. I just picked up um, the first issue of Mall. That was really good. Um, I like uh, Crowded by Image mm-hmm. Comics. I think that is a blast. That we, just, we just spoke with Christopher Sabella recently, and yeah, that book is a blast. I love it. Yeah, I can like you know that for me. I've liked a lot of Chris's stuff, but for me, that that's his best book that he's done. It's just feel it just came right out the gate feeling so fully realized and funny and smart. It's and also so like silly. Right on, and also like all right on the button in terms of the gig economy and stuff. I feel like one of the most eerily credible like future dystopias like I've ever read. Yes. Uh, yeah, this, this, I mean, the that. funny thing is, it's so silly, but it could actually happen that somebody would start a campaign to kill somebody, you know? Yeah, no, I can, I can absolutely see. Like, basically, it's just like one step removed from like, you know, like people being cancelled on social media. Yes. Stuff, you know? It's like, and no, like, you know, cancelled permanently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, exactly. But, um, um, it, um, I, so, yeah, I think it's just really well done. I've not read the latest issue, like, you know, but I'm looking forward to kind of diving into that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's a great book as well. I love that. Yeah, I'm a big fan, fan of Crowded. I like the... And then Gideon Falls, you mentioned. I like that too. Yep. That's such a great book. Um, Gosh. East to West, whenever that comes out, it seems to be coming out with like increasingly less frequency right now. Mm-hmm. But every time... East to West comes out. It's like reminds you that it's the best thing on the shelves. Is it? Because I've only I, w- I read the first issue and then I just got you know other things I needed to buy, so I never continued on with it. Let, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story. East to West. I like you. I picked up the first issue mm-hmm. and it left me kind of cold at first. I was like, I don't know if I like this or not. Right. And then I was going to. I was at New York Comic Con and Jonathan Hickman was there and he was doing a signing and I took all my Manhattan Project stuff to get signed by Jonathan Hickman. Yep. And then. He was set next to um, Nick Dragotta, who had lots of, like, who's the artist of East to West, and he had this big pile of, like, East to West trades. And then, like, um, so after he'd signed a bunch of Manhattan Project stuff, John Hickman says, um, and have you tried East to West? Um, this is the artist, Nick Dragotta. So I shake Nick Dragotta's hand, and I'm like, but well, now I feel a bit embarrassed, and I have to pick up, pick up the trade. That's funny. <laughs> so I went, okay, I'll give it a go, and I picked up the trade. And absolutely loved it. And once I got into the story properly, it was amazing. And like, uh, read like um, I've been reading it. Like I've, after that first trade, I then picked up all the single issues off of eBay that I'd missed. And then I've been buying it in single issues ever since. It's near the end of its run now. And I feel as acclaimed as it is amongst the people who read it, mm-hmm. I think it's actually like a sorely underrated book that doesn't get the love it deserves. And people don't really talk about it anymore, even though like it's casually just like. Just as one as an alt, it's like a proper like classic story. It feels like it's going to be one of the of all the books which are running right now. East to West is the book that I think like twenty years from now, if we're going to talk about it in the canon of all time great Western comics. I agree. Um, um, and like the the level of world building, the level of like imagery, the characters, like it's just the way the plot builds up. I think it's Jonathan Hickman's best work. Nitro got his art in it is like auteur level. He's just stunning. It's just like a really amazing book and one i was i was gonna got even i heard the news was gonna be getting adapted for tv yeah and the tv series like fell through um one hand i was kind of gutted because i thought that's a shame that's not coming to tv and like more people aren't going to discover this book but also it's such a great comic i almost can't imagine how you do it justice in any other medium um so but yeah, no, so that would definitely be a pick of mine. I'd say like is a fantastic book, and like it's a couple of issues away from finishing now. So once it's finished, I'd recommend picking up a couple of omnibuses and just treating yourself. I might because I agree with you. When I read issue one, it was kind of uh, so-so, you know. But it didn't. It wasn't enough where I'm like, oh, I gotta keep reading that. So I might pick up the trade and get caught up so I can at least um, figure out what's going on. But I think it's coming out more and more sparingly. Because, um, I mean, how busy is he right now with X-Men stuff, right? Well, uh, last thing, well, the Black Monday Murders, which was another excellent Hickman series, seems mm-hmm. to have kind of gone on hiatus while Pickman kind of deals with 
you know, single-handedly reinventing the X-Men, which has been fantastic. Like, I, I was never the biggest X-Men fan, but same. I've been absolutely loving House of X and Power of X. I, you know what? You sound just like JP and I. We're the same way. We've always said we've never really been X-Men readers, but we've always wanted to be, but it's been so hard to get into the series. And or into yep. the universe of the X-Men. And this is a great jumping on point for listeners who have been under a rock. Uh, pick up House of X or Powers of X. Um, it's a double series that go together, really. And um, written yeah. by Jonathan Hickman that's reinventing the X-Men. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And a lot of folk have said, like, you know, what, what's the difference between the two series? And, like, you know, and I, I've, I've actually, from a newsletter, um, which I release every week, just this week's topic was about House of X and Powers of X. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to think about, like, how would you differentiate these two books? And for me, it's like House of X is about redefining, like, the X Men and their place in the current Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. And, like, how do they relate to the rest of the world? Like, you know, let's try and make mutants like strange and vaguely threatening again let's kind of take away the superhero trappings and make them rebuild it as hard sci-fi essentially yes and um powers of x if if, if x is about like you know how the x-men relate to like the universe now powers of x is about like the universe as a whole and how like the history of mutants relates to the wider history of like civilization and the universe as a whole. Yeah, um, that's true. That I is guess a much broader scope. That is a good way of putting it. Um, powers of X is actually for me, it's kind of confusing. Um, I, it's, it's a, it's a tough well, read for, for me. me like, it, it makes a lot more sense based on the most recent issue. When you realize it's not just like spanning across time and space, but actually each timeline is an different one of like moira mctaggart's life yes um that was that was a huge reveal and that was crazy that they gave moira as a mutant we didn't know that before you know and um yeah, that issue it was a house of x that revealed that yeah it was, it was i mean and her power is so cool well it would be horrible i think having to be die and be yeah. reborn and live your life over again i, I don't know I can, I, part of me would like i'm not sure if i'd like to do it like indefinitely but part of me would like to like once this life is done like go back and get another go over knowing everything that i know now like i would save myself a lot of embarrassing social yes I, agreed agreed but she's had to do it so many times you know all those times you've had an argument with somebody and you think of a really good comeback you could have said but you never said <laughs> yeah i have a chance to I have a chance to go back and see them all. Yes, that would be great. Or keep yourself from saying something. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but I'm I'm really looking forward to that. But uh, say I'm gonna have to wrap it up. I gotta get my daughter to do an appointment. Um, but oh yeah, it's been great, uh, John. One more time, Mountainhead out on uh, IDW. Your artist is one more time. What was his name? Ryan. Right, so Mountainhead by IDW artist is Ryan Lee. Ryan Colorist Lee. is the great Doug Garbark. Letterer Sean Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic creative team. It's been a pleasure to work with. That's awesome. So issue one out now. Came out two days ago. It's out now, out this week. Yeah, it came out two days ago. Get it. Pick it up, people. It's amazing. Um, issue two coming down the pipeline in a couple of weeks, I would assume, right? In a month? September. Mid-September, I believe. Okay. Yeah, middle of next month. Sounds good. So, uh, John, it has been a pl- just a blast talking with you again. Um, and we'll get you on again real soon. That's great. I'm always happy to come on. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Hey, everyone, this has been Tyler for Smash and Grab Comics, and with me is John Lace. We'll see you guys later.